Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Christian Faith Radio Hour. This is David Campfield, and I'm recording this on Monday, May 15, 2023. And I suppose that means you could call this the Ides of May. So in this program, I want to continue our study of the Antichrist in Daniel chapter 7, with a specific aspect of what that chapter reveals to us about the Antichrist. But because that's such a negative topic, I want to begin with something else, take a little time for some pretty positive thoughts. Because as I was uh, getting ready for the program today, I I was looking again at the writings of G.H. Pember, and of course I I mention those a lot as I'm uh, getting into biblical prophecy, and I just really appreciated some statements he has about the scripture. I wanted to pass those along to you. So these are in volume two of his great prophecy series. They're from the first chapter of that book entitled Proofs of Divine Inspiration. And he's stressing in this chapter that the accuracy of biblical prophecy, especially when you look at it more closely, is a strong proof that only God could have authored this book. So he says, this book contains within itself credentials of a character such as no other book in the world has ever presented. In other words, credentials to back up its claim of divine authorship. And he goes on and he says, those who are imbued with the Spirit, as they study these prophecies, will appreciate them instinctively and perceive the divine wisdom shining with ever clearer light in the words of Scripture, as he feels that they alone can unravel the mysteries of his own life and those of the distracted creation around him. He will marvel as they reveal in still more profound depths the love of the Almighty Creator and the stupendous sacrifice by which his right was asserted to be both a just God and a Savior. Then I really appreciate his next sentence here. Unspeakable awe will fill his mind as he perceives that he is becoming possessed of the secrets of God. And, yet more wonderful, that the divine virtue with which those secrets are instinct, is gradually changing his nature and transforming his whole being. Now, he uses the word instinct there in a somewhat uh, old-fashioned way, but I really appreciate it. I had to look it up. It means to be deeply filled with something in the way he uses the word here. And he says these secrets are instinct with the divine nature. I really appreciate that thought. The promises of God themselves are instinct with the divine nature. They're deeply filled with the divine nature. So as we take time to ponder these promises, to really consider them and allow them to permeate our mind, we are made partakers of the divine nature. That's a reference to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says, God's divine power has granted to us all things which relate to life and godliness through the full knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and virtue. Then verse 4 goes on, through which he has granted to us precious and exceedingly great promises that through these, that through these promises, you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption which is in the world by lust. So according to this verse here, how do we become partakers of the divine nature? It's by allowing 
the Lord to speak to us through his promises. For sure, the blessings that are promised to us, such as the fact that we're born anew when we believe in Christ with the divine life, our sins are forgiven. These enable us also to partake of the divine nature. But here it's the promises themselves that impart to us the divine nature. And that means as the believers in Christ, we need to spend time considering these promises as Mr. Pember calls them here, the secrets, to allow these secrets to work in our mind, to transform us. And that's what Paul talks about in Romans 12, chapter 2. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That happens as we allow these promises to work in our being. When we do that, we are going to be transformed with the divine nature. So, so important to spend time with these promises and really allow them to work in our being and speak to us and transform the way we think. Praise the Lord for that. Then he has another statement. Again, I really appreciate this. He's talking about Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter 2. And we had a podcast on that recently. So you can, uh, we'll link to that below if you want to some help in studying that prophecy, but it's, it's the, the prophecy, the vision of the great image of human government. And Mr. Pember says, let the skeptical reader peruse Nebuchadnezzar's vision, that stupendous revelation which for nearly 2,500 years has been vindicating its truth in mighty changes and revolutions that have affected the most civilized and powerful kingdoms of the earth. In other words, this vision of the four kingdoms that will rule over the earth has been fulfilled in a remarkable way, in every detail, over the last 2,500 years. Again, really so, and I would encourage you to look at Daniel chapter 2 for yourself uh, and go back and, uh, if again, if you need some help, look at uh, listen to our podcast on Daniel chapter 2. Mr. Pember goes on. Let the skeptical reader produce anything like it from non-scriptural sources. It's really so. There's just nothing like it from non-scriptural sources. And if he cannot... Let him frankly confess that no other explanation of the phenomenon is possible, save that which Daniel gave when he said in Daniel chapter 2 to Nebuchadnezzar, The great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. What a ringing affirmation of the truth of the scripture. It is really the word of God, because only God could have revealed to King Nebuchadnezzar through the prophet Daniel what was going to happen for the next 2,500 years. And as the believers in Christ, we should boldly declare that this is the unique word of God, and we should firmly stand on the Bible as the unique revelation God has given to mankind of his truth and of the things that are to come. Praise the Lord for that. So again, I just really appreciated those comments and wanted to pass them along to you before we get into the main part of the program today. So now let's come to the main topic of the program, and that is Daniel chapter 7, and in particular, verse 25, and the statement in verse 25 that the Antichrist is going to intend to change times and law. And as I mentioned in the program last week, that is a key statement to understanding the career of the Antichrist. Now that statement somewhat relates to what the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7, when he says, The mystery of lawlessness is already at work, 
Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then verse 8 he goes on, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth, mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. And I would strongly say you cannot understand what is going on in our society today without understanding these statements. That the mystery of lawlessness is already at work and that one day when the Antichrist comes, he is going to intend to change times and law. So many Christians today are very clear that our society is in a state of moral collapse. It's really so. I mean, things are taking place today that are so corrupt and so immoral and just... unclean. I mean, even a few years ago, you couldn't have imagined that these things would be accepted in our society. Now they're being promoted. You just, uh, just, it's, it's just incredible what's going on. And we should have a lot of feeling about this as believers in Christ. It, it, you know, we look for the Lord's return, but we should also, when we see society today, I appreciate what the psalmist says in Psalm 119, verse 136, my eyes shed streams of tears because they do not keep your law. Well, we see this going on in our society. But we need to realize it's not just some type of random corruption. It's not the general sinfulness of mankind. This corruption, really this rebellion against what God has ordained as the moral order for mankind, the proper moral order, this rebellion against that proper moral order is being orchestrated and urged on by what the Apostle Paul calls here the mystery of lawlessness. And he calls it a mystery because it's working in a secret, hidden, mysterious way. It's not out in the open, but in a hidden way, behind the scenes, there's this evil spiritual force which is urging people on in their sinfulness and in their rebellion against God. And all of this is to prepare the way for the coming of the lawless one. In verse 3 of Second Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul says the day of the Lord is not going to come until the apostasy comes first. And then the man of sin is going to be revealed. So what's happening right now is that the mystery of lawlessness is causing people to turn away from God, to turn away from any kind of standard of righteousness and to reject that and to rebel against that until eventually there's the rising up of mankind against God in general in what this verse in verse 3 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 calls the apostasy. That verse is referring to mankind as a whole. It's not referring specifically to the church. Some Bible teachers claim that it's talking about the church here, but it's not because it's talking about the Antichrist and that relates to the world as a whole, not to the church specifically. So the apostasy here is mankind in general rebelling against the moral order God has established for a healthy order in society. And in rejecting that, in any kind of restraint, to bring in the reign of lawlessness, which will be the reign of the Antichrist. So that is what is happening in our society today. The mystery of lawlessness is at work even now, preparing the way for the coming of the Antichrist. And I appreciate what Mr. Pember says about the Antichrist. It says he will aim at an entire reconstruction of human society upon principles which have long been working beneath the surface in a mystery of lawlessness. So I want to go back now. With that understanding, let's go back to Daniel chapter 7, verse 25, and consider that statement. What does it mean to say 
that the Antichrist is going to intend to change the times and the law. Because we really need to understand this in a proper way. Well, if you were to talk to uh, Jewish rabbis about that statement, they would say he's going to change the Jewish laws and customs and festivals. And there is probably some truth in that, because if you go back to uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, it says he's going to seat himself in God's temple and proclaim that he is God, basically. So it could include the Jewish laws and festivals. But again, the Antichrist's career is not focused on the Jews, just like it's not focused on the church. So it should be talking about something more general than that, number one. And number two, as Pember points out, and as we were discussing in our study of Daniel chapter 2, this section of Daniel, from chapter 2 of Daniel up into through the end of Daniel chapter 7, is not written in Hebrew. It's written in Aramaic, which was the world language of that time. And that also indicates this section does not relate specifically to the nation of Israel. It's for the world as a whole. So again, based on that, we, we may strongly say that the law here, the times in the law, do not refer simply to what relates to the nation of Israel. It's more general than that. Well, if that's the case, then what is the law here? To answer that question, you have to understand you have three basic groups of people on the earth today as far as God is concerned, and each one has its own specific law. And that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 32, where the Apostle Paul speaks of the Jews, the Greeks, and the Church of God. And the Greeks, they refer to the Gentiles as a whole, not just to the Greeks as we think, would think of them today. So there's these three basic groups of people, and each of these groups of people have a law to keep. The Jews, of course, are under the Mosaic Law. Even today, to some extent, they're bound to keep the Mosaic Law. Well, as believers in Christ, we also have a law. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 21, says he is within law to Christ. And in a very real sense, Christ himself is the law that we need to keep today. We need to live in a way that is so pleasing to Christ. That's the law that we as the believers in Christ have to keep. Well, what about the Gentiles? Is there a law for the Gentiles to keep? Are they under any kind of authority today as far as God is concerned? Of course, everybody, there's, there's national laws. I'm not, ta- not talking about that. I'm really speaking of the kind of moral law that we have before God. Is there such a law, such a requirement that God has for the Gentiles? And the answer to that question is yes. They do have a moral law that they are bound to keep. And you find that law in the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. And why is that? Why is it that the law for the Gentiles today is in that section, the very opening section of the whole Bible? Well, the reason is, at that time, God was dealing with mankind as a whole. So whatever is found there is for mankind as a whole. It's not for one of these specific groups of people. But especially today, it applies to the Gentiles. It was only after Genesis chapter 11, when mankind as a whole rebelled against God at the Tower of Babel, that God called out Abraham, Abram at the time, to be the father of the called race in Genesis chapter 12. And from that point on, in the rest of the Old Testament, God was dealing with the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel, of course, also failed God when they rejected Christ as their Savior, and so God turned to the church. So that's how you have these three groups of people. 
But before the calling of Abraham, God was still working with mankind as a whole. And so what you see in those first chapters of Genesis are the moral principles for having a healthy society on the earth. Now, it's not the kind of law when we say that the Gentiles have a law. It's not the kind of law that God gave to Moses, which says, thou shalt do this, thou shalt not do that. Instead, it's principles. If you keep these principles, what these chapters show us, you're going to have a healthy society and you'll be blessed. If you violate these principles, if you reject the principles God has established for a healthy society, that's when you're going to run into trouble. So that's the law for the Gentiles to keep, is what's given there in those first 11 chapters of Genesis. And we can call these principles the basic laws because they are the basis for how to have a healthy society on the earth. So now I want to come back to Mr. Pember's writings and what he has to say about this. I'm still in volume two. This is pages 279 through 281. He says, Times and law may thus be regarded as the fundamental conditions of human life and action in the world, which are ordained by God himself. Given neither to Hebrews nor Christians, but to an every inhabitant of earth without exception because they were given in that first 11 chapters of Genesis before you had the Hebrews or the Christians. Such are the laws of the Sabbath, with its resulting week, the subjection of women, of marriage, of propitiation by blood, of the use of flesh for food, of capital punishment for murder, and of unrestrained procreation in the case of the married. These are the laws which God has ordained as the basis of all human society on earth, and wherever they are rejected, there is rebellion against the Creator. Because this is what God has said you need to do in order to have a healthy society. If you reject that, you're rebelling against what God has ordained. So here he's talking about what these laws are. And then he goes, that's when he goes on and he makes that statement I've already quoted regarding the Antichrist when he comes. He's going to try to just completely overthrow these laws and consummate mankind's rebellion against God. And so Pember says the Antichrist will aim at an, at an entire reconstruction of human society upon principles which have long been working beneath the surface in a mystery of lawlessness, but which he will openly develop and establish on the face of the earth in spite of their direct antagonism to the times and law of the Creator. So that's a very strong statement, but the Bible makes it clear that is what is going to happen when the Antichrist comes again based on Daniel chapter 7, verse 25, and what is being prepared for already by the mystery of lawlessness today, according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7. That's why Mr. Pember goes on from the quote I read before, and he's talking about the basic laws, and after he says, wherever they are rejected, there is rebellion against the Creator, then he adds, Hence the assaults to which they are now continually subjected warn us that the shadow of the coming Antichrist is already projected over the world. Very strong statement. And this book, uh, by the way, was published in 1909. So that's when he made this statement. He said that even at that time, these basic laws were already under assault. How much worse is the situation today? You almost wonder how much longer can the world go on in this kind of condition? It seems very hard. For sure, as we'll consider more in a little bit here, these laws are being flouted and assaulted every day more and more and more vehemently 
in our society. That shows us the way is being prepared for the coming of the Antichrist. Now I want to quote from another book, if I may, and that happens to be my own book, which deals very much with this topic. And it's entitled Lawlessness, the Left, and the Antichrist. And a lot of what I'm sharing, just about all of what I'm sharing in this podcast, this episode of the podcast, is from this book. And I'll put a link to that in the description notes below. And encourage you to get a copy if you want to get into this matter in a deeper way. Because I say a lot more about these things in the book. But what I want to do is go through the chapter on the basic laws. Because Mr. Pember gave us a few of the basic laws in his comments. In this chapter, I consider that much more extensively, but I'm still not, I'm not going to go through all of them, but I just want to go through some of the main ones. So you'll see, get an idea of what it is I'm talking about when I refer to these basic laws. So first of all, the first basic law is that we should honor God's word to man. Why did mankind get in trouble? Is because they didn't honor God's word in Genesis chapter 2, don't partake of the tree of knowledge. That caused the fall in the first place. So we should honor God's word to man. We should honor the Lord as the one unique God. Because as Genesis shows us, he created the heavens and the earth and he created us. So for sure, we should honor the Lord as the creator God. We should recognize that mankind was created in God's image and for God's pleasure and that he is really, really special among all of God's creatures. That's just a wonderful truth. That's what you see in Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 27. Man is very, very special as far as God is concerned. And in those verses, we see that God created mankind male and female. That's very clear. God created them male and female. That's what it says. So we should honor that fact. And we should recognize there are two basic kinds of people, men and women. And they have distinct roles in the home and they have distinct roles in society. We need to honor that fact to have a healthy society. We should recognize that man has a need to labor to satisfy his needs. Even before the fall, it says God put man in the garden to keep it. So he wanted man to do something. Even today, if, if people just are idle, they're never satisfied with that. We always have a sense we should be doing something productive. And of course, after the fall, God told man, in the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. So that's one of the basic laws that we need to labor to satisfy our needs. We should honor marriage between one man and one woman. That's what you see in Genesis chapter 2. Marriage is between a man and a woman. Very clear. We also need to recognize mankind is now fallen. We see that in Genesis chapter 3. There's no question mankind is now sinful and fallen and capable of great evil. You see that right away, very soon after the fall. My goodness, Cain murdered his brother right after the fall. So for sure, mankind is fallen. And we have to really recognize that fact if we want to have a healthy society. In Genesis 9 chapter 3, God sanctions meat for our diet. That's after the flood. God says to Noah, Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. In other words, at the beginning of our existence, before the fall, God gave us the herbs, the vegetable life to eat. But after the fall, he also gave us meat to eat. Genesis 9, 6, you see the sanction of capital punishment for murder. And that's what one of the laws Mr. Pember referred to. God said, whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. So that is the sanction of capital punishment 
for murder. And it's really the basis of all human government. Now God was saying, okay, you have to govern yourselves when he gave that command. And so the last of the basic laws here that I'm going to mention is we need to recognize government, it's local and national rather than worldwide. Because what you see in Genesis chapter 10 are the first kingdoms. Before that, you you had reference to some cities. But then in chapter 11, what you see is mankind's rebellion against God at the Tower of Babel when they all came together to try to build up this great tower. And God said, I'm not going to allow that. I'm going to confuse their language and I'm going to scatter them over the earth. So God is against a kind of worldwide union of mankind. He has divided mankind into these different nations. So we should recognize that government is local and national, not global and universal. So those are most of the basic laws that you see in the beginning of Genesis. And it is these laws that the Antichrist is going to seek to completely overturn and which are under assault today. And I think as I went through them, you could see very much for yourself how much each of these laws are under assault. But again, the point is to understand what is going on in our society today is not just some random event. It is the mystery of lawlessness that is behind the rebellion against God that is taking place in our society. And the specific goal of the working of lawlessness today is to overthrow these basic laws to cause the apostasy of mankind against God so that the way can be prepared for the coming of the Antichrist. That is really what is going on. And that, as Christians, is what we need to really be aware of and be clear about. So that will do it for this segment of the program. In the second half, I want to come back and then get very specific about how the mystery of lawlessness is working today. So we will be back with you on the other side of the break. I just want to take a minute to remind the listeners that this program is being produced in connection with my website, which is thechristianfaith.org. I hope you'll visit that. I think there's a number of very useful resources on there to help you with your spiritual growth, with your walk with the Lord, and with your serving of the Lord, and to have a view of what God's purpose is. If you want to subscribe to our e-letter, which we send out a couple times a week, just click on the subscribe link there. And if you'd like to contact us, if you have comments or questions about the program or about the Christian life in general, you can send us a note at notes at thechristianfaith.org. Welcome back. And the first thing I want to do in this half of the program is to say about my book that if you want to get a general idea of what the book is about, you can download the preface and introduction directly from the website. So I'll include a link to that download in the program notes. If for some reason that does not work, you can go to my website, thechristianfaith.org, click on the Writings tab, then click on the Books tab under that, and click on the title of the book, and then scroll down on that page, and there's a download link right there. And as I say, that'll give you a pretty good idea of what the book is all about. It's about the first 25 pages or so of the book. And now, as I say, I want to consider what is the force that Satan is using to promote lawlessness in society today. And some people aren't going to like that, which is understandable. But we have to try to look at things from a biblical perspective and apply them to the situation of today. 
and I think I have a pretty strong basis, a very strong basis for what I'm going to be saying. So I hope you'll hear me out, even if you may not agree with what I have to say or if you may not uh, like what I have to say. And if you disagree, send me a note. I'm, I'll read it and, uh, and consider. At the end of the first half of the program, I read this statement by Mr. Pember that the Antichrist will aim at an entire reconstruction of human society. And that's going to be based upon the principles which have long been working beneath the surface in a mystery of lawlessness. Well, we all know who is working towards an entire reconstruction of society. That is the social and political left in this country today and around the world. That's what they do. That's their goal. They're constantly talking about how we need to transform our country into something else. They want a kind of revolution. They more or less come out and say that. That is the nature of the left, and that is the force that Satan is using to spread his lawlessness today. And, you know, that relates to the title of my book, you know, spoiler alert. A lot of people say you can't judge a book by its cover. Well, I would say my book you pretty much can judge by its cover, uh, to be honest, and, and by its title, Lawlessness, the Left, and the Antichrist. That's the thesis of the book, that Satan is using the left, both socially and politically, to spread and promote lawlessness to prepare the way for the coming of the Antichrist. And if you doubt the truth of that statement, let's just go through the basic laws that I listed in the first half of the program and consider where does the left stand in relation to each of these basic laws. First of all, do they honor God's word to man? And the answer to that question is obviously no. They hate the Bible. They're doing everything they can to limit its influence in our society today. That's just the nature of leftism. They hate the Bible. The ACLU would want to completely write it out of American public life. And of course, if leftist commentators and educators are always trying to discredit the Bible and say, well, it's, it's not really the word of God. Now, there is an exception to that. And that is the black churches, which are a part of the leftist coalition, But that's really just not a philosophically consistent position. And not everybody is always consistent. As I mentioned in the book, as as the hostility of the left towards God and towards the Bible becomes more and more evident, you just hope some of these uh, black churches will eventually realize they don't have a home there on the left. Does the left honor the Lord as the one unique God? No. Their feeling is there's many ways to God. Now, again, you may have some uh, people in that coalition who do personally worship the Lord. I'm talking here about leftism as a whole. On the whole, leftism does not honor the Lord as the one unique God. They're always saying there are many ways to God. You may remember that at the beginning of the previous Congress, there was a Democratic congressman who stood up and gave the opening prayer, and he prayed in this way. We ask it in the name of the monotheistic God, Brahma, and God known by many names and by many different faiths, a man and a woman. That's not honoring the one unique God. That's pretty much mocking him. And again, saying, well, there's many ways to God. That's a very, very common strain of what you get on the left. They do not honor the Lord as the one unique God. Do they honor man as being created in the image and likeness of God? The answer to that is also no. That's a, a, a pretty important point. I want to come back to that later on. and We'll develop that some more. But no, the answer is they do not, by any means, honor man as created in the image and likeness of God. 
do they recognize that God created mankind male and female? This is a very striking one. We all know, especially recently, they want to say basically men and women are interchangeable. You can decide what you are because there's no basic difference between men and women. Again, it's just the nature of leftism. You have to consider these things for yourself. If you feel what I'm saying about leftism isn't true, I would just ask, how do you feel about these points? Do they recognize man's need to labor? Not really, because they're always promoting welfare and they're promoting the socialist mindset that we're supposed to be supported by others. We should be able to live off the fruits of others' labor. Again, just the nature of leftism. Do they honor marriage as being between one man and one woman? Again, you just read that and you know the answer to that question is obviously, vehemently no, on the part of the left. Recently, the... In these past few years, the hostility to that has been especially vehement on the part of the left. No, two men can be married, so-called. Two women can be married. They do not honor marriage as being between one man and one woman. Again, these are all the basic laws that God laid down in the first part of Genesis. And this is what the left is opposing today. Do they recognize that mankind is now fallen? No, they don't, because they're always trying to create the utopian society on the earth. They think if we don't have utopia, something's wrong. They don't realize you can't have a utopia among fallen mankind. That's just not going to work. They don't accept this basic principle. For sure, they don't accept the sanction of having meat in our diet. At least a good section of the left is not. They like to say meat is murder. We should all be vegetarians. It seems like a small thing, but it's just a consistent expression of their rebellion against God. Do they accept the sanction of capital punishment? Absolutely not. They absolutely feel the the, the state should not have the ability to put anyone to death. And as I say in the, the book, that's not showing mercy. That's allowing the guilty to escape justice. But the left, because of their rebellion against God, they reject what God laid down in his word, that yes, the state should and even must put murderers to death. Otherwise, there's no justice. And finally, do they recognize that government is local and national rather than global and worldwide? No, absolutely not. They, They want to transfer power away from nations to these internationalist, globalist organizations such as the United Nations, and other international organizations. They really are against the nation state. They hardly believe we should have a border because they're promoting this idea of just unifying all of mankind under one central authority. And again, that'll be a big factor in preparing the way for the Antichrist. You know, I have to say, even before I read Mr. Pember's writings, when I looked at the book of Genesis and having the political background that I did, I just... It was clear to me, I read these things and I said, gosh, it sure seems like the left is just spontaneously against all the principles that God lays down in this section for how to have a healthy society. It was just crystal clear to me. But what was not so clear to me was exactly what was going on behind that opposition, what was motivating that opposition. That came a little bit later when I uh, began to study this a little bit more. But the basic point, I, I just don't think there's any arguing this is that the left simply has an innate hostility to the law of God that we see in the first part of Genesis as an expression of its rebellion against and hatred of God. 
But I, I want to be very clear. I, I'm not trying to tell people to be Republicans or to be conservatives. Uh, and I, just to let you know a little bit of my background, I was raised uh, in a very conservative family from a very young age, and I was very much involved in conservative politics. Uh, and that was a big part of how I came to the Lord. I was, I was seeking the, the meaning of life, and I found it in politics up until the time I became a Christian. And then I realized the Lord's not trying to reform the world's political situation. He wants to establish his kingdom on the earth. And so being saved did not get me into politics. It got me out of politics to try to stand with the Lord for establishing his kingdom on the earth. And I have a video online where I share my testimony about how I became a Christian, where I get into some of these matters. And so I'll post a link to that as well in the program notes below. And again, another spoiler alert. At the end of the book, my conclusion is not, you know, join the Republican Party or vote Republican. My conclusion is, as the believers in Christ, we should be standing today for God's kingdom on the earth. That's our responsibility. That's our calling. Not to try to change the political situation. Now, I do think if we take a strong stand, if we, if the Christians rise up in a much stronger way than we ever have, that should have a salting effect on the corruption that's taking place in society today. Yes, absolutely. If we have a stronger stand with the Lord, you have to believe it would affect the consciences, consciences of so many people who are involved in so many evil things in this society. That's the effect we should be having, and hopefully we will have. Not the politics is not the answer. I've never. I don't believe that. Now, okay, but I have to be very honest. I'm I'm happy when I see, for the most part, um, conservative policies put in place. I, my my political views have never changed, and I do feel that's more healthy for society. But I have to realize that's not the answer, especially when you see just the total collapse of any kind of moral framework for society that we're seeing today. Politics is not going to solve that. What's going to solve that is when the believers turn back to Christ in a much more serious way. For a number of years, I've had this uh, feeling that as the believers in Christ, we need to up our game. We have to be much more serious in following Christ, much more serious about spending time in his word, allowing his word to shape our thoughts and our considerations and our decisions and our living so that we have some testimony in America today. I just feel there's so little testimony. There's supposedly there's so many millions of Christians in America today, but there's just not much testimony for Christ. It's just not, it just doesn't seem to be having much effect on society. And that should really cause us to consider our situation before the Lord. So that's the result that I'm hoping this sharing will have. That believers will have a deep feeling, I need to be much more serious about my pursuing of Christ. But, again, I have to be honest and say, one of the reasons why I wrote the book and had the burden to write the book was that I see Christians being deceived by leftism and being caught up in that system. And I know if anyone gets caught up in that, it will be very, very hard for them to go on with the Lord in a healthy way. As I've been preparing to share on this, the Bible verse that keeps coming to mind is 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14 which says that Satan himself transfigures himself into an angel of light. And that's exactly what leftism as a social and political movement does. It it presents this false appearance to conceal its real nature. They they just tell people, we, we care about justice and equality 
and we care about the oppressed and the, and the poor people, and we want to help them, and we, and we want peace on earth, and we want to take care of the environment. You know, all these good things that, that make it so attractive to so many people, in particular young people, they get taken in by this false appearance. So what I want to try to do is to really show what's the real nature of leftism. We have to see through the false appearance and ask ourselves, what is the real nature of this movement? Then we can have a way to understand it. But I think we'll wait on that until the next episode we do on this topic. I had thought to possibly get into that in this episode, but it's really just too much material to cover in one program. And also, it's going to be a very much of a change of pace, because to consider the real nature of leftism and why it just has this innate hostility toward God, we really need to look at its philosophical and historical background. So we'll do that in the next program. And again, I know a lot of people are going to disagree with me in some of the things I've said in this program because we're touching on the matter of politics, and that's obviously a very touchy subject. But I hope we can consider these things before the Lord and in the light of his word and really have a very sober consideration of these points because it is a very serious matter. And again, I would say if you, if you disagree with me, if you feel I'm wrong, send me a note and let me know why. I'll look at that. But in any event, Until next time, may the Lord keep you in his way. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of the Christian Faith Radio Hour. For more resources, you can visit thechristianfaith.org, which is my website. If you'd like to receive my e-letter, Just click on the subscribe link there and enter your email address. And to connect with us by email, just send us a note at notes at thechristianfaith.org. Until next time, may the Lord keep you in his way for his sake and his glory. In Jesus' name, amen.